We think we do, and we, we try to, but we're just not there yet, and there's a reason for that. So let me just share briefly why, in an incident that happened to me this week, so I'm driving down the road, uh, my sister calls. Uh, now this particular sister, you know, usually if she calls me, there's something wrong, like some shingles have blown off her roof, she needs me to come put them back on, or there's a plumbing problem, or whatever. <clears throat> so I kind of delayed the call, right? So I'm like, man, I just really don't... So I called her back later on, and, and my sister works at Mount Carmel East Hospital, and she, she says, hey, the reason I was calling is because I need you to explain to me who created God. Okay. And she says, it's not for me, it's for my coworker. We got to go back to work here in about five more minutes. Here, you tell her. Now, you try to explain God in five minutes, okay, how, who created God, and so, so names are very important, right? Um, our, our youngest daughter's about to give birth to a, a baby boy here in the next few weeks, and they still don't have a name, and, and so I'm panicking over that. Um, I'll give you a name uh, if, if you want one, but, but names are important, and the names of God are so important. And so the, when you open up your Bible to the book of Genesis in chapter 1 and verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word for God is Elohim, which is actually um, in the plural. It speaks of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit created. And so there's a big word that is used in reference to God. God is transcendent, which means God is outside of his creation. He is beyond us. So in answer to the question of who created God, no one created God because God is the one who created time, space, and matter. And God is outside of time, space, and matter, which means in the beginning. So in the beginning, God created, right? So the beginning, there is a beginning. God created that beginning because he's outside, he's beyond that beginning. Now watch this because um, we are very um, time conscious, are we not? Right? See, we, we are locked into time. God is not. God has no past. He has no future. He is always in the present. Everything to God is in the present. You have a past. I have a past, a present, and a future. God only has a present because he is outside of his creation for time, space. He created the heavens, right? And so the heavens are, are um, outside his dimension, and so there is a dimension beyond the heavens that is God's throne room. It is where God exists. It's where he resides because God is spirit and God is everywhere, but he has a, a space outside of our known space, so time, space. So what is outside of time? Eternity. God is eternal. He is not created. He's outside of space. He is outside of matter. Matter, we know, right? We're here on planet Earth. But God, yet, although he is transcendent, he is very intimately involved in our lives. Now, here's why I state all of that. The reason why we get into trouble in trying to explain God and why we get ourselves into trouble when we're trying to explain God, when we are going through very hurtful circumstances, very difficult roads in our lives, we want to try to explain God, but God is unexplainable. He is outside of time, matter, and space. And so we, we must be very cautious 
to say, well, God is like this, and God doesn't do that, and God doesn't care, and God this, and God. God has revealed himself in the Word, the Word of God, and he has revealed himself in the Word, his Son, Jesus Christ, who came to reveal and display the Father. So we're spending some time on talking about Jesus, right, and the Father, because I want you to know there is a Father who loves you, and he is good. He is good. Regardless of what you may have gone through or what you are going through, I'm glad you're here this morning because I want you to understand how much God truly does love and care about you. So um, if you're a guest with us for the first time, we welcome you. Uh, in your bulletin, there is a connection card. If you take a moment and fill that out with as much information as you feel comfortable giving us, and you can drop that in the offering plate here in just a moment. Or there's a basket at the exit, and there's a gift for you uh, on the way out. We are just so excited you're here to worship with us as we uh, have worshiped through song and we'll worship through prayer and, and through um, just kind of diving into God's Word. So if our ushers could come forward at this time, we're going to receive our morning offering. And if you're a guest, please do not feel obligated to participate in this. Um, we are just so excited that you're here with us. So we're going to pray again. Father, we, um, we're amazed, as always, that there's just a side of you that is mysterious that we cannot comprehend, we cannot explain. We just, we have to trust. We have to, we have to just exercise faith in you. And so, Lord, I pray for those here this morning that maybe their faith is hanging on by their fingernails because something has happened that has rocked their world. God, I pray that today you will give them strength to hang on to you, to hang on to you, to trust in you with all their heart and to not lean on their own understanding, but in all their ways acknowledge you because we know that you will make their paths straight. You, you will come through as you always do in your timing and in your way according to your will. So we thank you, Father, for the opportunity that we've had to worship, to give as giving as a part of this worship experience. We come just uh, giving out of the overflow of, Father, what you have blessed us with. Father, we thank you for the missionaries that we are supporting. And Lord, I just pray that that uh, offering, that we will just blow the lid off of uh, the goal that we have set Fathers, we are um, supporting those that you have called out from among us in order to spend their, their, their life's, um, um, their life's uh, calling just, just telling people about Jesus. So we, we thank you, Lord, that they are um, walking in faith and just trusting you to open up doors of opportunity that they might share the love of you, Father with a very hurting world around us, a world that is extremely broken. God, we thank you that you take broken things and you put them back together again. And you make them whole and you make them new. And so, Lord, may we see that today. In Jesus' name, amen.
And that's what we desire for you is a a new beginning. Uh, So if you have your Bible, let's turn to Luke chapter 15. Uh, There is not an outline here in the bulletin because I switched messages for today. Uh, The message I actually planned for today, I'm using it for the last message in this series uh, because there are a couple aspects of God that I I want to touch on uh, before I get to that last message. Um, And just to kind of let you know up front that, you know, questions are asked of me all the time. And people say, well, you know, I'd really like to um, believe that God loves me and that God is good and, and all these things, but there's just so much pain and evil and suffering in the world. And why is it in the Old Testament that, you know, uh, men and women and children were slaughtered at times? And why did God let that go on? And why did he even endorse that at times, it seems like? And so I'm going to answer those questions next Sunday. Now, the second thing that really is a roadblock for a lot of people is, okay, if you really God is really loving, kind, and gracious, then why would he have ever created a place called hell, and why would he ever let human beings go there? And if he did create it and he let them go there, why do they have to suffer for all of eternity? Why doesn't he just put them out of their misery? Uh, I'll do that one in two weeks. And then we're going to finish up with looking at the elder son, um, in this parable of, of, the, good, of uh, the prodigal son, or the, the parable I call of the lost sons, plural, uh, because both of them were lost, but for different reasons. Uh, they were outside of this relationship with, with their father. So um, in Luke chapter 15, again, we're going to focus um, on the father's response uh, to the younger son who returns back to him. And we'll pick this up again in verse 11. So Jesus continued. Uh, There was a man who had two sons. The young one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, and he set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like you're one of your own hired men. And so he got off and he went to his father. And so the purpose of this um, parable is really, how's the father going to respond? Because the father in this parable obviously is representative of God the father. And so it says that, but while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to kiss his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring out the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I don't know if any of you have uh, ever seen the movie Color Purple. I know that's going way back. Uh, some of you, it doesn't matter what movie I bring up, you've, you've seen it, okay? I know some of you probably have. So in the movie Colored Purple, one of the subplots of the movie concerns a wayward nightclub singer whose name is Sugar. 
And uh, sugar works in a rundown bar that is beside a river. And she is a, the daughter of a stereotypical hellfire brimstone preacher, right? So just as Hollywood would make it that way. And uh, he preaches in a church that's not far from the bar. And uh, one night she was singing in the bar the song, I've Got Something to Tell You. And suddenly, as though something was reverbing, she heard the choir singing out of her father's church the, the song, God's Got Something to Tell You. And it, it kind of, you know, takes her back for a moment. And so here comes Sugar with her, her band, and they go you know, down the street singing and playing, and they march into the doorways of her father's church who is now standing at the pulpit. He has opened up his Bible to the prodigal son. And as she makes her way down the aisle with her band of sinners, she says to her father, even us sinners have a soul. And Sugar explains as she hugs her father, how would her father respond? Now, obviously, in the story of the prodigal son, this son has been wayward. He has taken, demanded his inheritance from his father, which was the equivalent of wishing that he were dead. The father gives him his inheritance. He squanders it all. He finds himself slopping pigs, which was huge for a Jewish young boy. He would never do that, but he is so desperate. Everybody's left him. His, his family, his friends are all gone. There's no money left. And he comes back to his father, and he, in essence, says to his father, just as Sugar said to her dad, even us sinners have a soul, as, as the father, in this case, hugs the son. But how would Sugar's father respond? Would he give her a warm embrace, followed with a flood of tears, like we see here in the prodigal son? But he doesn't. He stands unmoved and unmovable, and refuses to forgive his prodigal daughter, who in his eyes believes that she has brought such shame upon her family because of her lifestyle, he turns away. Home is a very powerful word because home speaks to us of a place of safety and security and love and acceptance and purpose. You know, even though you grow up and you move away from your home, when the holidays roll around, uh, we are very quick to gather up our children and we, we make our journey back home. When for most of uh, my children's lives, uh, we lived out of state and we would gather up and we would travel back to Ohio home for the holidays because there's just something about home. And so God has created within us this desire, this yearning, this longing to be at home with him. But as we have discovered that back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God, that there was this kind of orphan spirit, and the orphan spirit simply is, is without a home. It's, it's a spirit that is rooted in fear. It is a spirit that is rooted in lies. And so now we feel like we have to make our own way, and we have to you know, provide for ourselves. And so we launch out into life, and we are missing out on this relationship with this God who has created us, and there's this sense of longing within us. We 
may not explain it that way. The Bible explains it that God has put eternity in our hearts. But there's this, just this sense of longing that there is something outside of me. There is something beyond me. There is something that is transcendent. It's God, right? So we, we wouldn't explain it that way. We couldn't put our finger on it. But even as a lost young man who, who was trying to make his way through life, I, I just knew that there had to be something outside of me. There was more than me. There was more than just this life. And my heart was longing for home, to be home with God. And so... Like many of us, uh, when you have an orphan spirit, you're going you're gonna to live that life in one of two ways, either in rebellion or in religion. And we see this rebellious prodigal son, and then we, in the older brothers, going to see a son who was, who was steeped in religion. And so home is very powerful because it elicits all kinds of emotions and memories. Now, you may have grown up in a horrible home situation where there was abuse and there was all kinds of things, horrific things that took place. I get that. I understand that. But home uh, with God pictures closeness. It's, it's God drawing you back to himself. And I believe the coldness of that fictional father in the color purple illustrates why so many Christians or so many people live in the far country because they are fearful that if they try to come back to the father, they're just not sure how he's going to respond because you know, I've, I, I know enough, or I've read enough, or I've heard enough out of the Old Testament how God is just like this vengeful, unforgiving, tyrant kind of God who's a judge sitting on a throne who's just waiting for you to do something wrong, to make a wrong step, a wrong move, and boom, you know, all of a sudden vengeance is now poured out upon you. And so who wants to go to a father like that, right? And so we keep ourselves at a distance. And, I, and I, I thought to myself, you know, growing up, I thought, well, first I thought, well, you know what? Uh, I know what happens is that when you die, you just cease to exist and you never knew that you existed and, and it's going to be okay. So you might as well, you know, eat, drink and be merry and get the most out of life that you can in the short amount of time that you're here because after all, this is it. There's nothing beyond that. But there was something yearning inside of me and something saying, but this is not it. And there is something outside of me and beyond me. And so I thought, well, okay, you know, this God, okay, who is this God? And, and so I, heard, you know, heard things about this vengefulness of God, and I thought, you know, why, why is God that way? And then, then somebody began explaining to me about Jesus and said, no, 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 God's not that way. This is the way God is. And I thought, well, okay, so in the Old Testament, God was like this grumpy old man, but in the New Testament, he got happy? How did that happen? And so we have all kinds of weird concepts about God that we, through experience and through what we've heard or what we've been taught, we try to mishmash God together and we try to figure him out and, and we, try to, we try to make sense of things. Show me an atheist and I'll show you someone who, who is angry at God who has been let down, who has been hurt, who had an expectation that God did not come through with. There are many reasons. Um, and so I thought, well, maybe I'm just going to be condemned to be a second-class citizen uh, in God's kingdom because I'm just really not sure how God's going to come and how he's going to respond. And so deep down we believe that sometimes that God hates us for our sin and that he's just aggravated in this angry parent. 
And so the, son of the, the story of the prodigal son illustrates for us what God is, his attitude, how God responds to we, the wayward kids. So in, in, remember that what corresponded with this parable was in Jesus' day, in chapter 15 and verses 1 through 2, is that there were tax collectors and sinners coming and listening to Jesus. And when the Pharisees, you know, the religious people, they, they were teachers of the law, they were like, man... Who is this Jesus who, who accepts, who welcomes sinners and eats with them? Well, how could he do that? And so they were strict. They, they had a very judgmental view of God and that God accepted only certain people and the certain people that he accepted were the people like them, right? Who were, were, were very bent on making sure they crossed every T, dotted every I, followed every law to the nth degree because after all, there's this angry, vengeful God who is awaiting to get you if you don't. And that was their kind of their concept of God and that, that kind of drove them. And so they're upset with Jesus because uh, now all of a sudden the masses, uh, you know, the sinners and tax collectors, the tax collectors were so sinful in their eyes, they had their own category. You know, they were hanging out with Jesus and following and Jesus was loving on them and he was talking with them and eating with them and and they were upset because they couldn't get the masses to come to listen to them. And after all, um, the Pharisees then tried to discredit the message of Jesus. And yet what the Pharisees... There was a, there's like this indictment against Christ. And Jesus came to display who God is and they just could not accept what was being displayed. So... Um, Here's what I want to do this morning. I want us to look at this younger son for a moment, and I want you to, to extract from verse 20 and how God responds, the father responds to the prodigal. I think there are three things that this tells us about God, and on the third point, there is a reason why God responds this way. And it's a beautiful, beautiful story. So uh, let's dive into it here. So Hopefully this will come up on the screen. I know we've been having some problems with our uh, technology here this morning. So you remember it says that when the son comes back, I mean, he's got his whole full confession he's going to give to the father. But it says while he was still a long way off, the father saw him. So remember that in order to heal the orphan spirit, you have to confront lies with truth. So here's the lie of the enemy for today. The lie of the enemy says, we must work our way to God, right? We've got to work our way back to him. So this young son, he's, he's like, you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm coming back, Father, and uh, just make me like a hired hand. I'm going to work my way back. But the truth of the gospel is that God has worked his way to us. Notice that when the sun is coming and he peeks over the horizon, that the father is the one who runs to the sun. Because God has always, always, always been in the process of working his way back to his creation who rebelled against him. Not the other way around. We don't work our way to God. He has worked his way to us. And so here's the, here's the deal about God. God is patient enough not to give up on us. He's patient. And so, uh, wow. The, because the father is looking for his son, the father didn't console himself with the thought, well, 
Hey, he, that son's gone off. He's in rebellion. At least I got one good one left, right? Have you ever said that about your kids? Okay. Well, at least I got one good one still hanging around. Uh, the other one, whatever. I ask sometimes, I ask, you know, I, I really shouldn't do this. It's really cruel of me. But um, sometimes on Mother's Day, you know, when we have baby dedication and we have parents up here and they've got multiple kids they're having dedicated, and I ask the question, which one's your favorite? That's really not fair, right? So, but you do know parents have their favorite, right? Those of you who are parents, you, no, I'm just kidding. No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> This is such a beautiful image of God, how he, why did he know the sun was coming over the horizon? Because God was patiently waiting for his return. God is so patient with us. It breaks my heart to hear people say, well, you know, I'm just so messed up. God doesn't want to have anything to do with me. You don't know how many times I've walked away from God, how many times I've sinned against God, how many times I've done this and I've done that, and I've committed the unpardonable sin, and, and on and on the list goes. No, 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 no. Listen, God is patient. He is not going to give up on you. You may give up on him, but he is not going to give up on you. And a lot of times as I talk about the character of God, and a lot of us have a hard time understanding relating to God as father because maybe you, didn't, you had an earthly father. It was just, you know, uh, created a lot of, of havoc in your life. And we've already talked about this, that you often project upon God as father based on the relationship you had with your earthly father. But remember, God is not like your earthly father. Every earthly father has sin issues. God doesn't have sin issues. God is our perfect heavenly Father who is so patient with us. You know, the reason why we have a hard time understanding that is because as human beings, we're not very patient with one another, are we? In fact, we will give up very quickly upon people when they hurt us when they use us, when they abuse us, we want to quickly cast them aside. And if they hurt us again, we're, we're done, right? Okay, I may let you hurt me once, you get me the second time, I'm done. That's the way we are, human beings are. Our, you know, our parents, we do this with our kids. How many, <laughs> have you ever heard your parents say, how many times do I have to tell you? Okay, now when I was growing up, my mother used that phrase and I always thought to myself, that doesn't even make sense. It's like, like what, six, nine, 14? I, I, what, what does that even mean? How many times do I have to tell you? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> now, those of you who are not parents, you enjoy that period of your life. Because uh, you're sitting there thinking, I would never say to my kids the things that my parents said to me. Yes, you will, right? So I remember when I was young, I was like 12 years old, and so I, I started a lawn business, right, back before that was popular. So I had a lot of elderly people that lived in our neighborhood. I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm, my grandfather gave me a lawnmower, so I was going to cut yards. And so I remember, uh, you know, I was out there, I had the thing tilted on the side, I'm cleaning out from under it, and uh, my mom came out, and she's all worried about that, like, you know, uh, you make sure that, that thing doesn't start up on you, you make sure that thing doesn't start up on you. 
And so sometimes she just said stupid things. And so I'm out, you know, it's like, if you get out there and you cut your legs off with that lawnmower, don't come running to me. Well, mom, if my legs are gone, I can't run anywhere. I'm sorry. Forgive me, mom. So, <laughs> so 2 Peter uh, 3.9 says, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So, circle that word everyone, right? So God is so patient. He so longs for this relationship with his creation that he will wait however long he has to wait to see you on the horizon, and he will come running after you. God is always working his way towards you. And the Bible says so much so that the Holy Spirit, if the Spirit of God did not even draw you up over the horizon, you would never even come. That's how much the Father loves you. He's going to give you every chance possible to come to him. But it depends on how I see him as to whether or not I'll take that step. I don't know how many of you remember the movie Forrest Gump. I'm sure probably all of us have seen Forrest Gump, right? So uh, at the end of the movie, Forrest takes Forrest Jr. Uh, to the first day. His son's getting on the school bus, and here's, here's the, he watches his little son get on the bus, and the best words of the whole movie is he says, I will be right here when you get back. God will always be right here waiting for you to come back. He's not going anywhere. God does not have a bent in his heart to be vengeful towards you. He doesn't have some kind of sadistic thought that, you know what, you've done wrong, you've messed up, now I can't wait to get back at you mentality. He doesn't have that. And, and I'm, please come next Sunday, and I will prove that even from the Old Testament. That was never his mentality. All right, here's the second thing we know about God is that God is passionate enough to show extreme love. He's passionate enough to show extreme love. It, again, it says in verse 20, he ran to his son, and he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And circle the phrase, he ran. Again, we talked about this before. Why did he run? Because of his compassion for his son. And in that day and time, you know, distinguished patriarchs did not run. I mean, they, they had their tunic on, and they, it would be like, you know, almost like wearing a dress. And they would have to hike that thing up, and they would have to show their legs. And uh, they'd be like one of you guys, uh, like Norm. It'd be like me putting a dress on Norm, telling him to start running. <laughs> not that he's ever tried that before or anything, but... <laughs> The equivalence of it would be like, you know, your, your father, like you, he's so compassionate, he's so excited you're coming home, he's just like stripped down uh, to his underwear and, and running after you. That, that's kind of the, 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 the term of the compassion of the father as he is coming and he's embracing his son and he, as we said last week, he's just kissing his son. His son has come from a pig sty, right? He, he's got the smell and filth all over him. He, let's watch this. The father doesn't say to the son, go into the house, get yourself cleaned up, and then you know, I'll think about hugging you and kissing you and bringing my best robe and putting it upon you. No, he, he grabs the son in all of his filth, and he just lavishes everything upon him. He throws a party. He was so passionate 
that he goes to the extremes. And you'll notice, notice this, there was no lecture by the father. There was no bringing up the past. There was no, I told you so. I warned you, you should not have. Hey, if I'd been that father, at least I would have wanted to slap that kid around a little bit, right? Do something to him. I know what my mother would have done. You know, get the switch. Here it comes. Uh, Here's the problem when your mom whips you with a switch. Is that my mother, when, when she would get worked up, and, and the more she started spanking me, the more worked up she got. You know, it's like, <laughs> well, we just stop the switch and tell me what you want to say and then finish it out, okay? Right? See, those of you <laughs> waiting for God, you know, to talk to you or to, listen, the father just lavishes, he just grabs his son no conversation between the two of them. He just grabs his son, he starts kissing him, and he says to his servants, go get the best robe, get the sandals, the ring, we're having a party. Sometimes God speaks the loudest through his silence. Listen, when you come to the Father, trust me, he's going to lavish you with his grace and his mercy and everything that is good about him. And words sometimes don't even need to be spoken. You know, that's difficult for us to understand because we as human beings in life, we're always checking in with people, right? Do you still love me? Do you still love me? Do you still love me? How about today? Do you love me? Psalm 145 says, the Lord is loving towards all he has made. Here's the third thing about God. God is forgiving enough to accept me. He's forgiving enough to accept me. Verse 21, it says, I have, the, the son said, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. I'm no longer worthy of your patience. I'm no longer worthy of your extreme love. I'm no longer worthy to be identified as your, your son. I'm not worthy of forgiveness. You're right. You're not. God makes you worthy. Amen. And the way that he makes you worthy is through his son. You see, Jesus came to make us as I said a couple of weeks ago, Jesus didn't die on the cross to make you worthy. He died on the cross because you are a person of worth and value to the Father. And in order for God to lavish his forgiveness upon you, in order for God to be so patient and kind and gentle in response to our waywardness, to our thumbing our nose at God and doing whatever we wanted to do, and the reason why he is so passionate to show his extreme love is because of what Christ has done on our behalf. So let me just remind you of what those things were, is that Jesus Jesus took our punishment, right? And so um, Romans 3.25 says that God sent Christ to take the punishment for our sins and to end all of God's anger against us. Wow. 
You know when you sin, A, God's not surprised, and B, uh, he doesn't try to clean you up before he exercises forgiveness. You know, some of you are fishermen. You know this. You, you, you don't clean the fish before you put it in the boat. God does not demand you to get all cleaned up, and then he's going to forgive. He didn't say to the son, go take a shower, and then we'll think about, again, putting the robe and the sandal and, and having the party and the ring on your finger. No, God forgives because of what Christ has done on our behalf. And this is such a tremendous thing. What kind of father is waiting for you if you decide to return home? He is waiting. This the father is patient and he's kind and he's loving and he's generous because of what Jesus. This is the basis of the father's forgiveness for what Christ has done for us. That Jesus took our punishment means that we have a replacement. We have a substitute. This whole picture is displayed by God in what is known as, as the Passover, right? And so the nation of Israel, they're about to leave Egypt, and God supplies a substitute in order to in order to cover their sin and, and to make them, in God's eyes, to be holy and pure. And, and they're going to eat of that lamb. They're going to feed. They're going to feast from the lamb. And God's going to send them. See, um, clothing is very, very important in the Bible. In fact, every, every book of the Bible talks about clothing and how important it is. And so what happened to Adam and Eve, you know, uh, they're, they're, they're endowed with the glory of God in their nakedness. And so after they sin, after there's this sin that takes place, all of a sudden they realize, hey, we're naked, we're, we're different, we're not the same. So they grab fig leaves, they grab their own clothing, they try to clothe themselves. What's the first act that God did? Take away the fig leaves. That's a human effort to try to cover up your sinfulness. I will provide the substitute. I will provide the replacement. So he took the life of an innocent party, an animal, and he shed the blood of the animal, and he clothed them in the skin so that they would be covered by the righteousness of Christ who would one day come as Messiah and clothe all of us. And so this is exactly what we are taught in the New Testament, is that when I come to my Heavenly Father, regardless of how dirty I am in sin, regardless of how far away I've gone, regardless of how long I've been gone, or what I have done, the Bible says the moment that I receive Jesus as my Savior and Lord, He became my substitute. He became my replacement. And it's like taking a coat and Jesus put on me his righteousness so that when the heavenly father looks down upon me, he does not see my sin. He does not see uh, what is wrong with me. He only sees the rightness of Christ. He only sees Jesus in me. That's love. That is love. Does this match? My wife said it didn't, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Clothing's important. Because you could tell things about people by their clothing, right? So we are called the bride of Christ because of what we wear. Right? If you go to a wedding, all right, who, how do you know who the bride is? She's wearing the white dress in case you wondered. That's why, ladies, you don't wear a white dress to weddings. You don't upstage the bride, right? That's what my daughter taught me. Not that I've ever had that problem, but in case it was an issue. Uh, yeah, and so, so God has 
clothed us. Jesus took our punishment. Here's what you see is that, look, all right, how many sins did Jesus forgive? All of them. Do you realize when Christ died, let's say this is, this is the cross and this is the past. That means from the moment that Adam and Eve sinned and all the sins of all humanity that came all the way up to the moment of the cross and then you go from there to the future, all the sins of humanity all the way into the future until God comes back and, and recreates the heavens and the earth. And that means all of those sins from past all the way to future, all of them were covered by the blood of Jesus. Jesus drank of God's cup of wrath. Jesus drank of God's wrath so that you and I could be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, for all of humanity, for all time. And as long as I, so I am clothed in the righteousness of Jesus, and nobody can unclothe me. which means you, you are eternally secure. And I know that sometimes people have a problem with eternal security, and, and usually it's because um, you're mad at God about something because somebody did something, you feel like, God, uh, they need to taste of your justice. Now listen to me very carefully. You better hope that God doesn't allow you to drink your cup of justice for what you've done because it's not going to be a good cup. God has, Jesus said, it is finished. It is paid. And so here's the second thing. Jesus brought, he, Jesus bought my freedom, speaks of redemption. And so it says he gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. Redemption means that, you, you know, if you're on the slave block and, and God purchases you from the slave, from slavery, and he purchases you and he sets you free. Listen, God not only... Jesus not only provided the Father the means by which he forgives us, he has also provided the means by which we can be in freedom from the old sin nature. Listen, when Jesus died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he is resurrected, you were resurrected. That means the old man has gone. There is no longer a sin nature in a new creation in Christ. That old man has gone away. The new has come. There might be the residue of that in your thought path patterns that creates the, the, the temptability and why you, you, you fall into sin or why you choose to sin. I shouldn't say you fall. You don't like trip into it. You make a conscious decision to do that. But listen, if, if God crucified the old man, then tell me, tell me, tell me who in the world resurrected him? Nobody. And one of the ways that the enemy dupes us is into believing, well, but you don't understand. I, I just got to drag to God because I'm just an old sinner, you know, saved by grace. Stop calling yourself a sinner. The Bible calls you a saint of God because Jesus has set you free. So walk in the freedom. Man, stop getting all tripped up over what Satan wants to do or how he wants to do it. You are free in Christ. Because Jesus paid the price. Number three, Jesus restored our relationship to God. He reconciled us. He became our mediator, which means that you and I now can enter into the presence of God himself because Jesus has become our mediator. And fourthly, he is the one who has given us a brand new identity. 
You know, there's a lot of things about people speaking about identities now. If you go on a website and say, hey, uh, let's look up uh, Google about identity, and you'll get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of websites dealing with identities. Because as human beings, basically, we build our identities on our careers, our possessions, our education, and our appearance. Listen, the Bible says build your identity on one thing and one thing only, and that is who you are in Christ. You've been clothed in him. He is in you and you are in him. Do not allow anyone to build up or to tear down. Listen, if you, if you've, if you build your life on what people say about you, if, you, if your self-esteem rises when people are complimenting you, be very, very careful because the same people who complimented you today are going to be the same people who tear you down tomorrow. And if, you're, if your self-esteem rises on their compliments, your self-esteem is going to die on their criticism. Don't build your self-esteem on that. Don't build your identity on that. Build your identity on what God says about you. He says, I love you, I cherish you, I have chosen you, I have adopted you, I have forgiven you, I have sealed you with my Holy Spirit, I have set you free, I have a calling upon your life, I have a gifting upon your life because I want you to be at home with me. The Bible says anyone who belongs to Christ becomes a new person. The past... The past is forgotten. Everything is new. Remember, God is transcendent. He's always in the present. That's why the Bible says about your past, he's put it in the sea of forgetfulness. He's cast it as far as the east is from the west. He's not concerned about your past. He is concerned about your present, and he's moving you in a direction for the future. Stop beating yourself up over the past sins the present sins, the future sins that God has forgiven you of? You say, but the Bible says if I confess them, then God's faithful and righteous forgive me. That is not an issue of judicial forgiveness. God's already judicially forgiven you of everything. That's an issue of fellowship. Yes, take seriously your sin. But don't let the evil one get you to hang out and wallow in all the stuff you've done in the past. Listen, the father did not say of the prodigal son, hey, go get cleaned up, go to your room, wallow in what you've done and how you've embarrassed me and how you've brought shame on our family and when you've done enough penance, then I'll call you out. His forgiveness, his acceptance, his love, his standing was instantly made new. And that's what God does for you. Let's bow our heads together. Now, maybe you're here this morning and, uh, wow, you, you've never been clothed in Christ because you don't have a relationship with him.